Turn with me, if you would, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1. This morning's passage is a tremendous, theologically rich introduction to the Apostle Peter's letter about learning to live in God's grace through the vehicle of suffering. It's easy for us to forget, it's easy for Christendom, I think, to forget that the book of 1 Peter is ultimately about grace. As you read through it, you see that there is much about suffering in it, and certainly suffering is a primary theme. It's a significant element, but suffering is not the ultimate theme. It's not the ultimate point, as you can imagine, and you would hope that your ultimate call in this life or the next is not to suffer. It is a call to suffer that you might experience grace, that God's grace would be prevalent in your heart as you think about what he has done and as you think about what he has called you to. This is not simply a matter of God's grace extended to you, but that because it is extended to you, that you too then would live by it. And this really flies in the face of so much modern Western Christianity. You have heard this time and time and time again. Your life in Christ is about your obedience. And in many cases, in fact, I would say a large percentage of the cases throughout our country and even across the world, the idea is that you bring yourself to Christ a concept that is completely foreign to the Scripture and would prevent the need for grace. You needed grace, I needed grace, because we couldn't bring ourselves to Christ. You need grace, I need grace, because we can't keep ourselves in Christ. The book of 1 Peter is massively helpful toward that end. And as I said, suffering is the vehicle by which we would understand it. In these opening few verses, Peter front loads the letter with a deep, strong, solid theological foundation. He jams so much deep truth into his greeting that it reminds us of a person who's so excited about going on an adventure that in preparation he has loaded up his suitcase with everything he can think of to make the trip better and himself more ready, that while he can barely get the zipper shut on the suitcase, he sits on the, sits on the thing and stuffs in one more pair of shoes. That's what Peter has done here for us. He's given us so much rich truth. It's unimaginable that he could have done so in such an economy of words. With force and with finesse, Peter manages to unload the triune work of the Trinity here with the foreknowledge of God the Father in eternity past, the regenerating and cleansing work of God the Spirit in a believer's life today, and the forgiving atonement of God the Son 2,000 years ago, and obedience to him today. As you know, the purpose of the book is found concisely in chapter 5, verse 12. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is quite contrary to the concept of standing firm in your own actions or standing firm in your own devotion, standing firm in your own speech, standing firm in your own conduct. He says, stand firm in the grace of God. And this is, in fact, life-altering. At the point where a person understands that his salvation is but of grace, and that his sanctification is but of grace, and that his obedience is but of grace, that his forgiveness is but of grace. Grace becomes all the more important to him. He wants to understand it. He wants to live by it. He wants to be saturated with it. 
The person who has no interest in grace is very likely wrapped up in his own pride, his own ability. He thinks that he has done something favorable for which he deserves some reward. And so he doesn't need grace because he himself has managed to achieve that which he thinks he deserves credit for. By way of review, we told you that Peter was sent. An apostle is one who is sent. He is a sent one. And so the passage starts with these words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And with that, we unload this rich reality that the Lord used apostles one time and one time only to establish the foundation of the church. And with that, we have no apostles. The apostles died and they were not replaced. There's nothing in the scripture that would indicate that they were, much less that they would be perpetuated even unto today. So we said that Peter was sent. That was point one. Point two, we said that the people to whom he writes are scattered. And we don't know as much as we would like to think we know about why they were scattered or who they even were. We know that there were Gentiles and there were Jews. They were scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Bithynia and Asia, all throughout that land that we know today to be Turkey that once was called Asia Minor. It's a, a rather large area. As I told you, it's about the size, a little less than the size of California, turned on its side. And with that, you can imagine with a, a relatively low population that there were diverse groups of people sprouting up all over the place because they had little interaction with each other. And so this letter to them was a letter that drew them together, number one, in the reality that they were citizens of heaven, that they were uh, those who were saved by Jesus Christ, they were members of the body of Christ, but also that they were people who could count on suffering. Peter says to them, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal. Number three, point number three, was that you are secured by God the Father. The words here are, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And no, this is not God looking down the corridors of time and seeing what you would do. The word foreknowledge in the scripture never applies to events. It always applies to people, just as in this case foreknowledge, beforehand intimate knowledge. I walked you through the difference between the Greek term oida and the Greek term gnosko. Gnosko is intimate knowledge, oida is awareness. And so we're not talking about awareness. We're talking about that same intimate knowledge that Jesus said he did not have for those that he looked at and said, depart from me for I never gnosko knew you. I never knew you in eternity past. The foreknowledge of God was not placed on them, and so he separated them from the sheep, and they were cast into an eternity of torment. And so that declaration was riveting in the moment, and it should be riveting in the moment to you and to me. Yes, it should alter our thinking. It should alarm us. And as we look at the benefits and really the manifestations of God's foreknowledge in this text, two things should happen. You and I should be massively encouraged if these things are becoming increasingly true in our lives. We can trace that back to God's foreknowledge. On the other hand, if things, these things are not increasingly true of us, then we should embrace the fear of God and ask, why is it? Why is it that I am not interested in the things of the Lord with any degree of passion? And there's a solution for that, and we'll get there. Number four, sanctified 
actually number four today, sanctified by God the Spirit. Sanctified by God the Spirit. The text goes on like this. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And you can put in there prior to that, because this is how the text unfolds. If you're looking at this from a, a lingual perspective, from a grammatical perspective, what you're seeing here is not only who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, but another phrase, the phrase we're looking at now, also modifies that phrase, who are chosen. So it would go like this, who are chosen by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now the term here that's translated as by is the Greek term en, epsilon, nu, or en, and it can also be translated as in. And so you might read it like this chosen in the sanctifying work of the Spirit. What God the Father predetermined before time, the Spirit brings to pass in time. They work together. It's a perfect, fluid interaction that begins with God's predeterminative work in eternity past, resulting in time in the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God. Now, what is this work? The work of sanctification is the cleansing work that begins in the moment of spiritual conception. It is initiated by the Spirit of God with the rebirth. Fast forward for a moment to verse 3. Who does the work of rebirth? God does. God caused us to be born again. That phrase alone utterly destroys all theological Arminian thinking, the idea that man brings himself to Christ, that man chooses Christ, that he causes himself to be born again. It's completely foreign to the scripture, and here you see it in living color. Who causes us to be born again? It's God. God the Spirit actually does this work. In the same moment that faith, repentance, regeneration, and adoption, and sanctification begin, this begins with salvation. It all happens simultaneously in the same moment, and it is a work of the Spirit of God. God the Spirit does that work. Here the Holy Spirit is the instrument of consecration and cleansing. He sets us apart as holy, and in so doing, He cleanses us progressively. Now you can see why and how false religion is so uh, alienating not only to the church, but also the people in the world. False religion, meaning man puts on a show as if he brought himself to Christ, but there's no sanctification in his life. There's no change in his life. He's no different from the world. So people look at him and they call him a hypocrite. And they say, he's, he's no different from me. He's no better than me. He acts like he's better than me, but he's not. He's doing the same things I'm doing. He just hides them better than I do. In fact, he hides them. I don't hide them. That's really the difference. So you can trace this problem back to the reality that if a person is, in fact, engaging in repentance, he's engaging in faith, he's engaging in that which reveals him to be a member of the family of God, it is because God did the work. The person who's attempting to do the work himself is only embracing or engaging in works salvation. He thinks he has done enough. Now let me give this to you, as I said, in living color, even full, more fully here in John chapter 3. Listen to this. Just listen very closely to this. John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? 
He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows. Now, this is where Jesus has given the reality that things that are of the Spirit are of the Spirit. The Spirit does the work. It's a spiritual work. If flesh does the work, it's a fleshly work, and it's obvious, which it is. But what he's pointing out is the fact that if it is clearly a spiritual work, the Spirit started it. If it's clearly a fleshly work, the flesh started it. Man started himself in his sinful desire to be known as, as being better than what he really is. Uh, in verse 8, Jesus now illustrates it. He gives us a picture of it, one that you can all relate to. Listen to what he says here. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Even after Jesus has clearly illustrated the reality that this is a work of the Spirit, Nicodemus asks a question that a teacher of the Word of God should be able to answer. How can this be? There must be a, an answer that a man can get his head around. Jesus has just explained it. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes, speaking of the wind, which illustrates the reality. You don't know where the Spirit, not it, He, comes from. You don't know where He goes. And you did nothing to initiate it. You can't grab the wind and bring it to you. You don't play a role in that. What person would say, man, I'm so grateful that I figured out how to, how to harness the wind and get it here to where I am because I was really getting hot and it really cooled me down. I'm so grateful that no one would ever say that. But there are those who would say that with regard to their own personal experience with the Lord. In Acts chapter 15, verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. You see, God the Father gives the Spirit. The Spirit does the work. The individual believer exercises faith, and that's all he does. And even that is a gift from the Lord. According to Philippians 1.29, faith is a gift. God grants belief. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit. Spirit does the work. You don't get any credit. I don't get any credit. We wake up to that and we say, Lord, thank you that you've done that work. And we read the scripture. We study the scripture. We want to be taught well so we understand these things so we can think rightly about them so that we don't misevangelize people so that we don't corner people, so that we don't shove them and force them into some kind of decision, doing whatever we do by the flesh. We don't want to do that. We want to trust the Spirit to do the work with His Word, through preaching, through teaching, through counseling, through just loving interactions, serving people, being involved in their lives, waiting for the opportunity to establish credibility so that people really care what you think. And you can tell them why you think what you think. Philippians 1, 6, 
I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so, again, what you see here is the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who does the work of regeneration. It's the Spirit who does the work of sanctification. Now, you know this, many of you know this, from Philippians chapter 2. Paul here is speaking to believers who have been faithful. He says, you have always obeyed. Philippians 2, verse 12. You who have always obeyed. What does he say to them? Work out your salvation. Maybe <laughs> one of the most misused passages in the Bible because people will say, well, there you go. I've got to work out my salvation. I've got to work to get my salvation. That's a misrendering of the English. You don't need to know Greek to know that. That is not what he's saying. He's saying work out what you have. Work out what you've been given. Work out your salvation, for it is God who is at work in you both to will, in other words, his decreed will, and to work in you. It is God who is uh, at work in you both to will for his good pleasure. To will and to work for his good pleasure. He wills it, he does the work, but you're involved. You work, he has willed it, he causes it to happen. If sanctification takes place, if you're growing, if you're looking less like self and more like Christ, the Spirit of God is doing that work in you, but yes, you are involved. That's why Paul says there, work out your salvation. In chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, verse 13, all of what I've told you in one small snapshot, listen to this, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. God determined in the beginning, which was before you were born, right? You weren't here for the beginning, neither was I. God chose you in the beginning for the work of sanctification that would be done by the Spirit, and that work began with regeneration. It continues with perpetual cleansing. As I said, the Spirit of God does that work himself. Romans 6, verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity, and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. This is your role. You are involved. You are to present your body to righteousness, just as you used to present it to unrighteousness. As a slave to unrighteousness, but now as a slave to righteousness. You present yourself to things that are true and good and pure and right and worthy of praise and excellent. The person who continues to subject himself to godlessness, to things that he knows is not right, wicked thinking, wicked talk, wicked actions, of course won't be sanctified. The person who is sanctified by the Spirit wants the further sanctification that the Spirit will do if he himself will present himself to godly things, to to righteous things. Verse 22 of Romans 6, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. This is the distinction between the unbeliever and the believer. 
The believer is not freed from sin. He's enslaved to sin. He loves sin. He doesn't like the Word of God. He doesn't like the church. He doesn't like Christ. He doesn't want anything really to do with any of those things unless he can get just enough of it to keep people off his back. But the person who is regenerate by the work of the Holy Spirit and is being sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit is now enslaved to God. And it's slavery to be free. It's slavery to obey him, to experience the benefits and the blessings of knowing him. That passage, verse 22, goes on to say, uh, resulting in sanctification. In other words, you derive your benefit from being a slave to God, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. God decreed that the work would happen in eternity past. God the Spirit causes it to happen in time. And the reality is that ultimately you are being sanctified unto that point of eternal life where it all stops because now you're in a perfected condition, not because you've decided to be, not because you made it happen, but because God caused it to happen and you've been along for the ride with great joy. Ephesians 1 verse 4, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Now stop for a minute and just rest in that. For those who would say, well, that doesn't even, that, none of that sounds fair. You're, what, you, what you're doing when you think that is you're superimposing your belief system on God. And, and it's frequently those who don't read the Bible who have no problem staying in that mindset. The more you read the Bible, if the Spirit is in you, the more you read the Spirit's Word, the more you will be convinced that the doctrine of election is true, and it is the result, this is the primary place that we know of in the Scripture, that speaks of God's heart attitude behind it. It is the kind intention of His will. Now let me illustrate this for you in a way that I'm positive all of you can relate to. You are either a parent or you have had a parent, right? That's all of us, right? So along the way, there was a time where one of your parents withheld something for you or applied something to you that was, in fact, according to the kind intention of their will, and you did not like it. You looked at it, and you said, this, isn't, this doesn't make sense. It's not fair. And usually as a, you know, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 14-year-old, you know, that's the age where you start beginning to understand what fair is and what fair isn't. And while that's happening... There is many times little hope for really understanding what is actually fair and the fact that you don't really want what's actually fair. What you want is grace. What you want is grace. You want the kindness of his will. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 5, Paul says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers? Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now here's what I want to point out here. Could be real easy for you or me or people we know to start thinking, I am so glad I have never committed some of the things they've committed. Why is that? Why is that? Because of God's grace. God in his grace restrained you from committing some of the things that others have committed. But the reality is God restrained them from committing the thing that you might be committing right now and calling yourself hypocritically to be better than those that you are criticizing. You see how that unfolds so neatly? The Spirit of God has done the work that he has done. So when you look at this list of heinous sins, things that we would think to be unspeakable in some cases, the reality is that you lived in those things. You say, no, I didn't. And the Bible says, yes, you did. You might not have acted on all of them. Your depravity may not have been exhibited in conduct, but it certainly was your mindset. And so the absolute worst thing you can possibly do is say, Lord, thank you that I finally figured things out and chose to be a better person. It's hypocrisy. And, it, and it's absolutely alienating. It's completely offensive, not only to God, but to believers and to unbelievers. The mindset we ought to be having about this is, is one that is thankful with regard to the fact that the Spirit of God started that work, He's doing that work, and we want to be involved in that work. And so we want to cling to the Holy Spirit as He does this work in us. R.C. Sproul said, When the Holy Spirit brings us to faith in Christ, He does not stop with the initial work of regeneration or rebirth. He is also the chief architect of our sanctification, of our being brought into conformity to Christ. Point number five from your text, submissive. You will be submissive. We are submissive according to the foreknowledge of God. Say it this way, who are chosen to obey Jesus Christ. That's the way the text says it, right? Who are chosen to obey Jesus Christ. This is why you were chosen. It's one of the reasons you were chosen. If you obey Jesus Christ in a patternistic way, if your life is a reflective of obedience to Jesus Christ, it's because you were chosen to obey him. You see how that just strips you of your pride? You see how that just rids you of any legalism, any willingness to set yourself above others? If you recognize the reality that God in eternity past chose you for obedience to Jesus Christ, then you say, without that having been chosen, I would not obey him. Now, is it true that those who are chosen do disobey him? Absolutely. We're not saying that we don't. But if we weren't chosen, we would never obey him at all. But because we are chosen, we do obey him and we want to obey him. Here there is an inextricable grammatical link between the Father's elective decree and obedience to his Son. The person who is of the elect will obey the Son. 
Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10 say, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You see that grammatical connection unfolded here in the reality that if you will acknowledge that Christ is worthy of obedience, it is because God has given you that desire in your heart. Commentator K.H. Jobes says, this consecrating work of the Spirit has a specific goal. Consecrating work of the Spirit has a specific goal. He does not bring a person to some generic spirituality, such as is currently popular in much of Western culture, but more specifically into the new covenant founded on the blood of Christ Jesus. The Christians to whom Peter writes were chosen in God's foreknowledge by the work of the Spirit for a purpose. But Peter drives home the point that the people to whom he writes were chosen for the distinct purpose of obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, not simply for some generic form of spirituality. The purpose of being of the elect is that Jesus Christ would receive glory as you and I obey him. 1 John 2, verse 3, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. But so many, many, many people want to say, what do you mean I'm not a Christian? I can't just say I'm a Christian and be a Christian? Who are you to judge? By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. That's it. That's, that's how we know. Verse 4 says, The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. This is the certain reflection of the person who is called according to the foreknowledge of God. Romans 6, verse 3, and I, I think that this text, here in Romans 6, I think that this text, as well as any, displays the, the progression of God's work in a person manifested in obedience. Listen to this, Romans 6, verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? This has nothing to do with water baptism. He's not talking here about symbolic baptism. He's talking about Holy Spirit baptism. He's talking about the baptizing work that God does when he identifies himself with his children. When the elect are saved, that is the work of baptism. When you think of baptism, that's really what ought to come to mind first. We often think of water first. Water is only reflective or symbolic of Holy Spirit baptism, God's work of baptism. You read it again, having said that. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? You've been identified with him. You've been identified with his death. He dies, we die. He died to self, we die to self. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. 
So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. It's a new life. It's a changed life. It's not just adding Jesus. It's not just adding some conduct and eliminating some conduct and cleaning up your mouth. You know, wash your mouth out with soap. Stop cussing for a while. Quit smoking. Do those things. No, it's a matter of a changed life. It is a, an internal compulsion that comes from the Spirit of God. God the Father decrees the work in eternity past. The Spirit of God causes it to come to pass inside time, space, and history. And you and I cooperate, and therefore it happens at a more rapid rate. We walk in newness of life. And this is the reality of the person who is of the elect. He's submissive. He's obedient to Jesus Christ. Point number six. Let me go back through them. We said that Peter was sent to communicate the gospel as an apostle, lay the foundation of the church. We said that those to whom the letter is written are scattered. That was point two. Point three, we said the people to whom he writes are secure. They're secured because of the doctrine of election, the, the foreknowledge of God. Point number four, we are sanctified. We are regenerate and we are being cleansed that sanctified sanctifying work started with salvation point five we are submissive to jesus christ and point six we are sin pardoned we are sin pardoned he here refers to the reader as those who are chosen to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. To be sprinkled with his blood. On the Day of Atonement for Israel, as recorded in the Old Testament, the altar and the people were both sprinkled with blood. What was this about? What was the purpose for this? Why don't we do this today? I'll explain all that to you. But first I want to take you back to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24 and verse 3, where you see a record of this sprinkling of the blood, both sprinkling on the altar as well as sprinkling the blood on the people. Exodus 24 verse 3 says, Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. And so Moses had gotten the word from the Lord, truly, and he comes back and he reports it. The people of Israel listen, and the response is, we will do it all. And they meant it. They were passionate in their statement. Verse 4 then says, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. And said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. This is a reminder in First Peter 
of our atonement, but also the ever-needed cleansing work of the blood of Christ. The blood being sprinkled on the altar was representative of God's work in the sacrificial system, that God would provide atonement through the sacrifice, which, by the way, in that day was a foreshadowing of what would come in the person of Christ. So the sprinkling of the blood on the altar represented God's certain foreknowledge, his certain work that he would accomplish in the people, that he would provide atonement. Sprinkling of the blood on the people in 1 Peter is representative of the people's response. We will be obedient. So there's one sense in which where Peter uses this phrase in our text this morning, those people who are chosen to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. There's one sense in which each of those phrases is saying the same thing. Chosen to be obedient. Chosen to be sprinkled with his blood. There's another sense in which the phrase to be sprinkled with his blood or by his blood is reflective of the reality that we are in fact forgiven by his blood. This should be something of which we are reminded on a regular basis. In fact, today we will engage in the Lord's table for that purpose, that we would remember the blood of Christ. I told you earlier that you might be asking, well, why would this not apply to us today? Why would we not engage in the blood sacrifice today? Well, number one, because it was a system. It was a dissemination in a time where the Lord declared that it needed to happen. But the other reality is that the blood of Christ has been given once for all so that there no longer needs to be any kind of sacrifice. Those sacrifices were a foreshadowing of the sacrifice he would make. His sacrifice was done once for all. It was complete. There's no need for further sacrifices. Well, why wouldn't there be a need to, in a representative way, sprinkle blood on the people? The blood was never the issue. Blood is a metaphor that represents his death. So no, you don't need blood sprinkled on you, literally, but you do need to die. You and I do need to die to self daily. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 15. That is what we ought to do. We ought to be dying to self in, ref- in a way that is reflective of how Christ died to himself. He died for others. We, too, ought to be willing to die for others. The sprinkling of blood on the altar symbolized the atonement of the sacrifice. Sprinkling of the blood on the people represented their response in obedience. In Hebrews 9, verse 19, For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people But we ourselves don't need that sprinkling. We have the metaphoric sprinkling of the reality that Christ continues to do a work in us today through the Spirit. And this is really a very concise expression of how this works out in our lives. In 1 John 1 verse 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's your role. That's my role. The person who clings to his sins. He not only wants to keep doing them, he wants to hide them. The book of Proverbs, Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, He will not receive compassion. 
he wants to conceal his sins. He doesn't want to be held accountable for them. He wants people to think that he hasn't committed them. On the other hand, the person who is willing to expressly and deliberately and strategically expose his sins to others so that he will in fact receive forgiveness is the one who clearly is of the elect. His life is proof positive. He, he wants to be effective in the body. He wants to be involved in other people's lives in a fruitful and effective way. Ephesians 1 verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So again, he's leaning on God's grace. He's not leaning on his own actions. The person who leans on his actions and his ability to hide his sins is not operating by this grace which is given to us by the blood of Christ. In Matthew 26, we see this reflected in the Lord involving himself in the Lord's table. Matthew 26, verse 27, And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. In Romans 8, verse 33, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The reality of the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Spirit is that His love cannot be stripped away from you. You cannot be separated from it. The sprinkling of the blood, the pardoning of sin, is the result of God's foreknowledge. Those who are scattered and those who are secured are those who will live in this reality. They will rest in the fact that they cannot be separated from God's love. But the constant and increasingly fragile disposition of the person who is ever wondering whether or not he's in Christ, he's ever wondering whether or not his life adds up enough, he's constantly concerned about whether or not he's been obedient enough, ought simply look to the reality that the person from whom God's love cannot be stripped is the person who rests in his grace. He focuses on these truths. His conduct is a natural byproduct. His speech and his heart attitudes are a natural byproduct of focusing on what God has done and not on what he has done. We are covered eternally, but we are cleansed daily because, yes, there is spot and wrinkle and blemish in each of our lives. And so what need is there then in our lives? It's continued grace. If we rest in that grace, we will have peace. 
I wonder if you struggle with peace on a daily basis. Do you battle anxiety? Your solution is not at a pharmacy. Your solution is in the work of God in eternity past, in the work of Christ on the cross, and in the work of the Spirit in your life today. You say, Todd, you don't know my circumstances. And I say, and you don't know mine either. I don't know yours entirely, and you don't know everyone in this room's entirely. Everybody's got a story. And there may have been times in your life where that difficulty may seem to be more than you can possibly bear. But I want you to understand God will bring you to the brink of what you can possibly bear and not take you beyond that. You might think that you're beyond it. But the helpful reality in thinking that you're beyond it is that you yourself at that point cannot do anything to achieve God's pleasure nor your own joy. And until you're brought to an end of yourself, you will constantly and pridefully be convinced that you don't need God's grace and therefore you will not have God's peace. Now listen to how Peter wraps up the greeting. You know how it goes. May the grace and peace be yours in fullness of measure, in the fullest measure. Why these two things? Why does Peter somehow uh, suddenly, seemingly unconnected to the rest of the passage, borrow from a Pauline greeting? I believe it's so that you and I will rest in both. But understand this, there's a relationship between grace and peace. Grace, as you know, is unmerited favor. It is receiving what you do not deserve. It is the vehicle of God's love and care. It is his attribute that serves as a river through which all of his goodness comes to us in fullness. That's God's grace. And, as I have mentioned, it is the ultimate topic on Peter's heart as he writes his epistle. What is Peter saying about the true grace of God here. It is that you are suffering, yet you are eternally secure, having been sprinkled or forgiven, and you are being sanctified. You say, how is that a measure of grace? It's God's design. It is his design that you would recognize that you yourself are not capable of achieving what God requires of you. God grants that which is necessary for his glory to be manifest in you when things take place in your life for which you can't take credit. If someone could look at your life and say, wow, what a great guy, what an amazing woman, and that's the extent of it, then that's a miserable existence. But if people would look at your life and say, I've seen the trials that are beyond measure. Uh, there have been times where I have been truly unable to imagine how that person can withstand what he or she has been through. In fact, if he or she had attempted to withstand that alone, it would have been ultimate failure. But by the grace of God, God carried that person. You've seen it in others. You may have experienced it in your own life. And so you look back on that and who gets the credit? Not you. <laughs> Not you. I hope not you. I hope you don't try to give yourself credit for those times when you were so weak that you were completely out. Paul says it this way, in, his, in my weakness, he is strong. His strength is manifest in us when we are at our weakest point. 
in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verses 10 through 12, Peter says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. These are Old Testament prophets and religious leaders who didn't understand the fullness of what's been given to you and I today, but they worked hard to teach what they knew well so that it would be recorded in a way that would glorify God and bring the listener and the reader to an accurate understanding of how grace works. The passage goes on to say this, Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. The Old Testament prophets were not ultimately serving themselves. But you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Verse 13 of chapter 1, Therefore prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. How do you do that? Not in and of yourself. You don't choose to be a good person. You don't lean on your upbringing. You don't say, well, you know, I'm made of good stock. You know, I was raised well. You trust the Spirit of God by his grace to bring right thinking to you that you would operate in light of that right thinking. How about this in chapter 3, verse 7, men? Listen to this. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Show me a man who's got a miserable prayer life, and the first question I've got for him is, how do you treat your wife? Do you think of her with grace? Do you treat her with grace? If not, you can be certain that your prayer life is absolutely inept at best. This is a very convicting passage for me as well, men. But you and I need each other to remind each other of this reality. The man who thinks, I don't need this. I don't need to hear this kind of stuff. I don't need this grace. If that's what grace is about, I don't need it because I'm good on my own. He is the man who most needs grace. The reality is that this need in his life is obviously reflected in his relationship with his wife. But there is hope. There is hope, and the hope is here. Be the man who would think of his wife as a fellow heir of grace. The person who operates with grace is the person who understands that he has received grace. He meditates on God's grace, and God begins to do a changing work in him. And don't, don't be discouraged by this if this is your desire. If you have no interest in this, be discouraged. But if your hope is, well, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be a guy whose, life is, whose prayer life is completely inept. I don't want to be that man. I want to be a man who's effective in the body. I want to be a leader of leaders. I want to be like Peter the Apostle. I want to be a man whose life is worthy of emulation. I want to grow. I want to be stronger. I want to be more trustworthy. I want to be more faithful. That's what this passage is for. 
It's not to beat you down and make you feel miserable. It's to cause you to take a reality check. Say, I, I need grace. In chapter 4, verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And then Peter goes on to explain how that giftedness is to be worked out within the body. But employ your gifts as a reflection of God's grace. It's not unusual that someone will say, you know, the, 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 the gifts of the Spirit, what are they anyway? You know, they don't have any idea what their own gifts are. How, friends, how can you and I be an effective church if there are people in our church who, who don't know what their own gifts are, much less what the gifts in the Bible are? Very important. We understand our gift, giftedness. And that in our family groups, we are working that giftedness out together. Chapter 5, verse 5 you got to love this. Peter really, he really brings it down here. He puts it in simple terms. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud. He's opposed to the proud. Take that very seriously. God's firm and sovereign hand is against the man or the woman who is prideful, who can't quickly enough find every opportunity to exalt himself and to boast in what he has done and who he is. He gives grace, though, to the humble. You see, these truths are, in fact, humbling. And the person who is humbled by them is the person who is most blessed. He wants to be crushed by truth. The person who exalts himself and doesn't want God's grace, doesn't want to be humbled, is a person who won't receive God's grace. Chapter 5, verse 10, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Don't you want to be that person? Don't you want to be the person who's perfected, meaning matured? You're brought along, you're more mature than you were six months ago. You're increasing in your likeness to Christ. You're confirmed. People who know you would say there's a person who loves Christ. He loves the church. You're strengthened. You're a rock upon which others can rest and cling to for hope and strength in themselves. You're established. There's a reputation. There's a pattern in your life. And then this in John 1, 16, this, this interesting phrase it says, for from his fullness, we all have received grace upon grace. A more literal translation of this is grace instead of grace. Isn't that interesting? Grace instead of grace. We've all received grace. And we would say, thank the Lord for grace. And we've all spurned God's grace. And what does God do when we spurn his grace? He gives us grace instead of that grace. Grace upon grace. More grace, where we have poorly handled the grace he has given us. He gives us more. He gives us a flood of grace. It's grace on top of grace on top of grace on top of grace. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Grace is the vehicle by which God brings his love and his care to his children. It's grace. Were it not for grace, we'd be able to take credit. Grace is the foundation. P 
Peace is the result. Peace is freedom from worry. It's freedom from anxiety and the worst of conditions. And as you know, Peter is warning those to whom he writes about the fiery ordeal to come. Where does that peace come from? It doesn't necessarily come from a good night's rest, although that's helpful. It really comes from God's sovereign work. In Romans 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God, And not only this, we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Peace comes by grace. Grace brings justification. There's no longer enmity with the God of heaven, the God who is in sovereign control. He's in charge. You're not. He has a free will. You don't. He is sovereign. You and I are not. We only think we are. Psalm 115 verse 3 says that God does what pleases him. And if it pleased him to justify you, the result is peace. But if you're wrapped up in thinking about the degree of your obedience needing to measure up so that you somehow have achieved God's pleasure to the degree that he demands it, then you are not operating by peace. You're not resting in God's peace. Philippians 4 verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. Friends, there are no qualifiers here. There is no acceptable anxiety. Jesus himself tells us in Matthew chapter 6 that we ought not to be anxious. It's a command. But it would be wrong, it would be sad, it would be a miserable state to simply give that command and tell people, so the Bible says it, so stop doing it. By God's grace, Paul goes on further here. He says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, uh, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 9 says, The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. If you lack peace, it's not primarily because of your diet. If you lack spiritual peace, the solution is to think rightly about God's grace and to be thankful for it. Don't believe that you've achieved something and therefore you deserve something that you aren't experiencing. Recognize that if you're not living in God's peace, if you're not experiencing God's peace, perhaps you are trusting in something you've done and not God's grace. You haven't understood the relationship between grace and peace. Here, Peter gently and neatly closes this salutation with a quick but important reference to the means of God's work as well as the result of it. Grace is the vehicle of God's work. Peace 
is the reward. Grace brings about eternally secure salvation, sanctification, as well as submission and the pardoning of sin. The result? Peace. It's a peaceful spirit. Because of grace, we have peace. When we lack peace, it is because of a dismissal of grace. And then Peter says this, this final little phrase in our text, may it be yours in fullest measure. May you have grace and peace in maximum extent, fullness of experience. Back to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, and as he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me, that his grace would come to me in a flood and that my life would be an expression of that grace. The person who operates with grace is the person who lives in grace. The person who does not extend grace is the person who is not resting in grace. But the person who experiences his grace in fullest measure is the person who is most significantly a display of God's glory. After the Babylonian imprisonment, Israel is promised greater peace. And in Jeremiah 33, verse 6, we read, Behold, I will bring to it health, to Israel, health and healing, and I will heal them, and I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. Not just basic some sort of mental assent to a theoretical, theological peace, but a fullness of peace, an abundance of peace. Again, may it be that this morning we will leave here with recognizing that there is certain spiritual growth, obedience to Jesus Christ, and forgiveness in his chosen and scattered children so that we too will rest in grace and peace, that those things would be accomplished in us. Father, we do look to you now for an increasing awareness of what it is to live our lives by grace and with peace. We would be known by that, that in how we handle others, how we treat them, how we think of them, how we minister to them, that we would think first of your grace to us, that we too would extend it to them. And that in one sense, the peace that surpasses all understanding that's rooted in our justification would be the bedrock upon which we could operate with that grace. Grace that leads to peace, peace that leads us back to grace. We thank you, Lord, for your sovereign work that is, in fact, working itself out in us today. We ask that your glory will be known in all of these things. Amen.